A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back, everybody, to the Cold War podcast. Mm. My name is Cameron Riley. Your name is not. No, my name is not. My name is Ray Thunder God Harris. And welcome to everybody except for Rob. Thunderbutt Harris. Now, see, (laughs) Rob's thing was on the other show. Oh, shit. Sorry. Sorry. I'm going to. Rob has actually sent me part two, uh, which we will play (laughs) next time we record the season show. Nice, okay. Um, Now, before we get into this episode of the Cold War Show, episode four, um, I've got a few corrections, a few shout-outs, a few things we've got to address. Cool. Um, Now, in our very first episode, because I'm a complete idiot, I made fun of Duck and Cover. Right. Um, I said, Duck and Cover's not going to do anything when a nuclear bomb goes off. Oh, the emails that I got. (laughs) Um, So apparently... Right. I am an idiot. Uh, what was the turtle's name? Terry oh, the turtle? Something like that. I can't. Mm. Mm. Um, not a bad idea, ducking and covering. Apparently, uh, here I got emails in particular from Matt from Austin and Jose from Panama. Right. Um, as Jose says, uh, turns out that the radius of instant destruction in a single nuclear attack is surprisingly small. Right. So, yes, people in that inner circle will be instantly vaporized, and people right. in a somewhat larger circle will also be hosed, but people for hundreds, if not thousands of miles, will be able to see the explosion. It will be really bright, but since right. light, light travels at, well, the speed of light, <laughs> those people hundreds of miles away will not hear the explosion right away. The most natural thing for people to do is to go to the window and look. But there's a shockwave travelling at the speed of sound, so seconds or minutes later that shockwave will hit and it'll break all the windows, injuring all the dumbasses right. that are looking out oh, the look. window. Ah, the eyes. reason to duck and cover is to protect those people against that shockwave. Right. Well, I'm going to stand by what we said because if it does come and everything that I know is wiped out I just have to live with a bunch of people who are not near cities like I live now, I wouldn't want to live out my life like that. So... I'd rather die in the initial blast. If I'm not around, That's you what's don't want the to be point? around, basically. Exactly. What's the point? Jose uh, plugs a book that he learned all this from called Physics for Future Presidents. Cool. He says right. it's the physics everyone needs to know without all that math crap that makes Good. it boring and hard. <laughs> I like this already, yeah. Um, just about that too. I uh, in prepping for future episodes, um, I came across the this um, edition of the New Yorker magazine that came out on the thirty. 30- 1st of August 1946, I think. Mm-hmm. So about a year after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And um, it's a amazing account of uh, six survivors wow. of uh, Hiroshima, the blast in Hiroshima, and their story, what they were doing on the morning, 
I right. think there's like a there's a Jesuit priest and there's like a mother and uh, just a bunch of civilians. And then talks about their experience over the next uh, sort of week, mm-hmm. um, sort of trying to figure out what the fuck just happened. And yeah. it's like just the uh, the account, the first-hand accounts of, you know, seeing the victims that survived. But like there's this one guy who's a priest, I think. He got a boat. And he's uh, sailing up some river in Hiroshima and uh, he sees a group of people just sort of standing dazed on the edge of the river and he goes up to get them in his boat to try and find a hospital or somewhere to take people. And he reaches out his hand to try and pull one of the women uh, ashore and all the skin just slides off her arm. Jeez. Um, And the rest of them, all the skin on their body is just like, you know, sloughing off and... uh, Jeez, Yeah. Well, you know, you make a good point because it's not like the United States announced it. It's not like the people went, oh, there's an atomic bomb dropped by the United States to, to frighten Stalin. I mean, they, all they know is there's this giant explosion or this whatever, and they they now have to deal with it. I mean, they can't possibly know the specifics. No, well, you know, it was just, even – sorry, yeah. it was even worse. So right. what I learned from this uh, article was at 8 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. – an air raid siren went off in Hiroshima, and they 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 all kind of had been expecting Hiroshima to get bombed by the B twenty nines. And look, sorry for jumping way ahead, folks, but we're gonna we'll talk yeah. about this a bit later. But right. they'd all been expecting because it was one. It and I think Kyoshu were only the, the only two major uh, districts still standing because America had bombed the fuck out of the rest of Japan right. already with B twenty nines. So they heard the air raid siren go off as it did pretty much every morning, and then. Um, yeah, the all clear, so they kind of all hid under mattresses and shit when the right. air raid went. Then it went all clear, and they think it was because the radar operators could only saw three planes, and they oh, were like, yeah. "Well, this this obviously isn't a B twenty nine attack. Right. It might just be aerial reconnaissance or something." So they sounded the all clear, so everyone went about their Shh. daily business. Right, and then obviously the bomb went off, and uh, yeah. But if everyone had, if the air raid siren hadn't given the all clear, those guys then more right. may have at least survived um, anyway. Right. More of that later. I also want to clarify. Okay, in one, in, I think in the Churchill episode we were talking about Gallipoli. I said mm-hmm. more Aussies and New Zealanders died than anyone else. That wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting here. Um, I mean, a lot of Australians and New Zealanders did die. Right. I think the the Brits. Um, more Brits died in the Gallipoli landings, but in my defence, a they're only Brits, so you know, there's <laughs> a cam charm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, they don't really count. Uh, you know, one Brit is worth about you know point uh, three of an Aussie. As I always say, look, the Brits were so damn smart, they took their prisoners. Yeah. In the late 18th century, and said, "You know what we're going to do with you? <laughs> yeah, we've got a plan for you. We're going to send you to fucking paradise." Right. That's how smart the Brits. Anyway, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, British listeners. Uh, Thomas Moquette, our buddy from Vegas, was one of the people who sent this to me. So it was Rob Irwin, your favourite guy, yep. who you've uh, planned a trip all the way down to Australia just to get yeah. paid back on Rob. Yeah, it's personal. But as Rob points out, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons the back of my head probably thought that, it wasn't a point I'd done any uh, data research mm-hmm. on, is that in Australia that's the way it's made out. It's part right. of this sort of propaganda. You would think, and it's coming up, it's uh, Anzac Day holiday here on Monday, the April right. 25th, two days from now, uh, which is where we supposedly commemorate, but it's more like 
when I celebrate mm-hmm. uh, the the Anzac, uh, the the Gallipoli landings. Um, it's a public holiday here, but with all the hoo ha here, you would think that more Australians died than anybody else. But right. that, that would, still, there was a lot. It was like yeah. 50,000. I also somebody emailed me to say that we have to be very clear when we're talking about this period, not to confuse Russia with the USSR. Mm-hmm. When we're talking, I think in the Stalin episode about how many uh, oh, uh, right. Soviet. Citizens died in uh, stopping the Nazis. We said 27 million. That is Soviets, not Russians. Obviously, USSR was bigger than Russia. Russia was a very, very large component of it, but we have to be very careful with our terminology. Thank you to the people who corrected us on that. Yeah. Well, as an American, I can use blank statements all I want, and and I'm right because I'm an American. If if people don't fucking like it, you'll just (laughs) jump. That's right. Well, Rob's about to find out, but yeah, 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 yeah. So no, but that's that's a very part two of Rob's thing. Very valid point. Um, shout out to our first heroes, uh, the people, the Cold War heroes who have registered uh, for the premium membership for the show, even though we haven't started doing the premium episodes Thank yet. Thank you. They're my favorite. We'll, we'll call them all out by name at the yes. end of the show. If you want to um, be a hero, go up to a coldwar.com and register. Yeah. Um. Also want to announce uh, we just hit the 2 million mark on the Caesar show, Life of Caesar. Wow. Nice. 2 million downloads um, since Not we bad. started the show. Not per episode, um, <laughs> although that's that's our goal. That's <laughs> with with uh, those numbers, we could bring back the Roman Empire. But, yes, we're working on it. So, two minutes. So, thank you to everyone who has supported that show yes. over the years. And um, finally, big news, Ray is coming down under. Thank you for finishing that sentence. Yes, so I've decided to pay you back um, for messing <laughs> up my country in Vegas. So <clears throat> me and myself and the family are going to come down uh, what late June, early July of next year, bebop all over across the East Coast, and looking forward to seeing almost all of you. <laughs> um, and, of course... One of the reasons we're assuming that Ray has to come here is, is because by the time, you know, middle of next year after having done the Cold War for a yeah. year, there's no way I'm getting no. into your country. No, and, and and I will be asked to leave. So Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. Good. Now, if, if I could use that as a segue, there, there was a question I wanted to post to you, and, it, and, it's, and it's all related to the, the Cold War. I, I was thinking, you know, because if you look on Facebook, um, no one is no, afraid – no one I is, never look on Facebook. No, no, not you. I'm talking about everybody else but you. No oh. one is afraid to say the worst possible things about their government, the politicians. And I'm not saying that they're not wrong. That, that, that's the sad part is that they're absolutely right. But I was thinking back to the 1950s when the – and I'll just use America because I'm an American. Um, you, you know, when you, when you trusted to a certain degree, you trusted the government. You believed that the government was out for your best interest, that they would protect you. America was the good guy. The, the Soviet Union was the bad guys, and they were trying to take over. And, and you just if you were to show some people from the 1950s some posts that are on Facebook today, what they say about <laughs> Trump, I mean, they would, they would shit themselves. And I'm thinking, I, I would just love to know if there is a definitive answer. Maybe there isn't. What, what has changed between, say, 1950s, a government is your friend, to now where we all know the government's corrupt. And, and don't get me wrong, it's always been corrupt, from Alexander, Caesar, all the way down, nation states, 
do what they want. And if they have something they want to do where the people, they know the people aren't going to go along with it. They're going to package it. They're going to spin it. They're going to sell it. They're going to lie. They're going to distract it. They're going to do whatever they do. This is the nature of, of any powerful entity. So it's, it's nothing new, but as far as the people, are we, are we just so frustrated or, or we just don't care anymore? We're not afraid. We don't respect them because of Vietnam, the Vietnam Papers, Nixon, the economic crash, uh, WikiLeaks, the Panama Papers. Do we Have we had our eyes opened to a certain degree that we just don't care and I'm just going to go on Facebook and I'm going to rip every politician without any sense of fear of reprisal or anything? I'm just going to go on there and trash people where in the 1950s, you just did not do that and you respected your elders and and you respected authority and all, or is it just that we can now communicate? I wonder if the people in the fifties had email and they could plan things a lot better. I'm, I would just love to know what is it just the government has fucked up so many times over the last say four or five, six oh. decades that we just are fed up with it and we're just ready to tear them a new one. I anytime can answer it in one word. Oh yeah. Good. Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> he certainly did not help. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I, you know. In all seriousness, yeah. look, I think there's a whole bunch of factors there. I think um, you know you, the the proliferation of electronic mass media in the mm-hmm. late 20th century, uh, leading to the internet, has enabled people to get a broader range of viewpoints and opinions than they had before. That you know, you go back into the early part of the 20th century, you had. You know, a couple of television news presenters. You had your uh, Edward R. Morrow and you had your uh, newspaper commentators, a couple of newspapers, a couple of radio stations that were big anyway that people paid attention to. Yeah. You had the voice of God coming down and it was always the establishment that was pushing the establishment view. Right. But I think Nixon and uh, and NAM and the Pentagon Papers and all of that kind of stuff in the early 70s really... um, for the first time, there was actually proof that the president was a yeah. corrupt, slimy oh, motherfucker. Son of a bitch, yeah. Really. Even though people may have um, suspected that in right. years gone by, they knew it for a fact yeah. after Nixon. And I think that's got a, that, that kind of led to a steady increase in people feeling... You know what? We're probably getting fucked in the ass on a regular basis. I, anyway, we don't have time for this. We've no, got to get no. into this show, man. Uh, let's do it. Well, yeah, it's already going to be a topic, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is going to be yeah. huge. So today we did Churchill, we did Stalin. Now we need to do FDR, Fox <laughs> Dunaway Riley, born two thousand and fourteen to a no, very handsome, no. oh, slightly, oh. slightly different FDR. Sorry, wrong FDR. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and if you could, during this episode, we probably need to talk like him. You know, you, you know what's, that, what's that? There's nothing to fear, but fear itself. I mean, I think we should talk like that for the entire episode. Mm. People go, what the fuck show is this? But did you, do, did you do any investigating? I looked up about why FDR and the people in the 30s and 40s talked like that. Because it's always dr- dr- drives me crazy. Why in the hell... Where are they from? You know, what, what planet are they from? And I was doing some digging, and I just kind of looked that up. So at some point, I want to I wanna throw that out there. Well, why don't you throw it out there right I now? I will plop it out now. Okay, so that's called the transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent. And it really wasn't so much an accent. It was a way that they spoke, and it was reserved pretty much for the upper, the American upper class. And that's the way they were taught in their elite, you know, prep schools. And um, 
And also they taught, they purposefully taught the actors and the announcers to speak that way as well. So it was literally the language of the elites. But every time you see the old movies or the old uh, commercials or you hear the audio and they're selling, no matter what they're selling, these people have this over the top pronunciation is because they were doing that accent. And that's what actors were taught. And so it was completely different from the way the rest of the country spoke. But between kind of what happened with World War II and what happened to Britain in World War One, where, you know, some of the old stuffy rules kind of went out the window, this accent or this way of speaking drops very, very quickly, almost overnight during World War II, because people are like, we don't have time for this horse shit. You know, what's real, what's pragmatic and what works. But I just thought it was interesting about why are they talking like that? Because they were taught because that was their own personal private way of speaking to separate. So you, you would know who, you know, who, who someone is or where they're coming from, or the fact that they come from money. You need to know right away and you can tell by the way they speak. Mm. So I just thought it was- Bra- Brando came along and ruined that, man. <laughs> It's like, I could have been a contender. Stella. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was interesting. It is. All right. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We're going to drill down deep. Uh, And the thing that um, I found interesting while preparing for this is not just about this guy, but what the United States was like when this guy became president. Because I think... Understanding what the U.S. was like in the 30s and 40s is really going to be an important factor yeah. in understanding the, the the causes, or at least one of the causes behind the Cold War. You, yeah. you have to, and it's 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 a moment, you know, a long time ago, and I, I guess we've all sort of we know that there was a depression and mm-hmm. you know, this kind of stuff, but it really when you dig down into how fucked the U.S. was. Uh, economically in the early part of the 20th century. It might surprise you, but it also helps understand at least one of the imperatives behind the Cold War. So anyway, FDR. Yeah. Obviously president from 33 to 45, uh, which is a long fucking time to be president. Um, Yes. He won four presidential elections. Amazing. Astounding. Um, Democrat. Obviously there's a term limit. But these days, but I think during the wartime, they kind of gave him a free pass on the whole term limit. Yeah, I don't uh, think there the, was one at the there wasn't no one term limits in, at the time. Not in not in the um, the amended constitution. I think it comes after him. Ah, so yes. they're just like you keep going. Yeah. Well, no one had ever really tried it before because they had all adhered to the Washington standard of two terms only. He started that, and ah. no one ever thought about breaking that. Mm. Yeah. So, as I say, like he's been he's been called. Um, I read a couple of biographies on him, and you know he's normally referred to as the most gifted American statesman statesman of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, when he took office in nineteen thirty three, the economy was well and truly fucked. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm sure most listeners know that in nineteen twenty nine, the Great Depression hit. It was three or four years deep when mm. Roosevelt became president. Right. One third of the country was unemployed. Damn. And the stock market was worth 85. It had lost 85% of its worth. I mean, these people were just screwed. You had to be mega rich just to survive this thing. And a lot of those people did not. I've got a, if you look at the average rate of unemployment, 1929, it was 3.2%. 
So right. everybody was employed in 1929. Yeah, kicking ass. Um, 1938, 1931, 16.3%. 1932, 24.1%. 1933, 24.9%. <laughs> and that's what he steps into. Yeah, there's about a quarter, not yeah. a third. More like a quarter of the population was unemployed. Yeah. And, of course, it was worse if you weren't white. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was the average, but uh, almost half of the African-American population was unemployed in 1932. Damn. And that doesn't even count the people who lost their homes because maybe they could keep a job but were cut back and suddenly couldn't afford home or uh, rents, and a lot of people were kicked out, and that's one of the many things that FDR is going to try to deal with. Yeah. You know, getting back to the African American population, yeah. and it's it's important to remember that this is thirty years before the end of segregation. Yeah, and only yeah. seventy years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so it was it was very tough time for a black person in the U.S. And I read that white employers would only hire a black person if they couldn't hire whitey. Right, uh, they'd rather hire a white person than a black person, and many white bosses fired their black workers to, to give a real, white person yeah. a job. Jeez. Um, and, you know, for all of the things that FDR achieved, which we'll get into as we go, um, you know, it didn't really help the black population a great deal. Um, right. Anyway, a- agriculture was laid destitute partly because of the depression, but partly because of the Dust Bowl conditions. Now, I didn't know a lot about the Dust Bowl, Right. Obviously, I've I've you know seen a couple of movies and read a couple of books over the years, but um, do as a, does a general American understand what happened with the Dust Bowl in the '30s? Actually, I remember in high school it got a good solid seven to nine minutes. Mate, let's go with seven. Let's go with seven. Yeah, and they and because just looking up on Wikipedia, I learned more in thirty seconds than they were taught. But I just didn't appreciate the the vast size and and how it happened and why it happened, what they tried to do about it. So no, it is it is mentioned because it's like oh, there's a point in history, but that's it. Mm. Well, basically, there was a very poor understanding of ecology and agriculture, particularly with the farmers on the U.S. and Canadian prairies, right in the thirties. They basically, you know, leached the fuck out of the topsoil. Right. And then there was a severe drought and uh, there was just massive wind erosion. And, and and it created this massive dust storm that basically ruined most of the agriculture across Texas, Oklahoma, uh, and parts of New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas. Mm-hmm. More than 500,000 Americans became homeless. Um, between 1930 and 1940, approximately three and a half million people moved out of the Plains states. Um, and they were like, oh, no, okay, our farm is fucked. Um, let's move to the city. It'll be better off there. Of course, yeah. you know, yeah, it wasn't much better in the city because of the Depression. Well, where does the food come from to the city? It comes from the farmers, but I didn't appreciate it was like 150,000 square mile area, Oklahoma, Texas, Panhandle, Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico. I mean, it just wiped out, you know, the center of the country. And you see some of those photos uh, just absolutely devastated. And you're right. They didn't know that they were causing it themselves by ripping up all the grassland. And even then, 
when they when FDR starts working on it, a miniature Dust Bowl, if you will, will come again because they still hadn't learned their lessons enough. And so this this was horrible, and it took them a long time to really figure out what was going on for whatever reason. Yeah. So as you said, this is where a lot of the food is being grown, and it's yeah. fucked. So the U.S. Yeah. is dealing with that on top of the Great Depression, Jeez. on top of a war. Thank God I wasn't born then. I'm sorry. I know that's self-centered, but thank God I was not born any earlier than when I was. Now, in the cities, you know, the factories are idle, businesses are closing their doors, the yeah. banking system was teetering on the brink of collapse when FDR came in. Um, one visible effect of all of this was the Hoovervilles. Yeah. Uh, these were like slum areas uh, across all of the cities, you know, people living in cardboard boxes and tents and small, like, wooden yeah. sheds that they'd Shanty towns, if you will, yeah. Or not shanty even shanty towns, yeah, but yeah. And a lot of the Hooverville's because right. you know, it all happened during Hoover's administration, obviously. Well, the one thing I learned, and I'm not going to jump too far ahead, but you know, a lot of the World War One veterans were in D.C. trying to get some help, and for whatever reason, Hoover's one answer was bring out the army, bring out the army, bring out the army. And he was literally, you know, let's, we're going to have an open market. The market decides what happens. He would not budge on the federal budget, which was roughly $4 billion at the time. And he would just see them as criminals, send out the army to do whatever. But he was like, no, we have to let the market settle all of this. And so there just was not a lot of help until he's out of the office. I really wanted to punch the man in the face. And then on top of all of that, you've got a lot of violence uh, just lying beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is sort of the heyday of guys like Al Capone, the Chicago mob. Right. Um, They've been in power since 1919, running a lot of operations across the U.S. Um, By the way, shout out to Johnny Bananas, a.k.a. John Nonos DeFronzo, semi-retired but still the boss of the Chicago outfit, as I understand. Good for him. Johnny Bernardas, big fan of the show. Um, <laughs> shout out to Johnny Bernardas. He got the nickname No Nose because he sliced off part of his nose while jumping through a window Damn. during a, a, a burglary in 1949. But the police, nice yeah. guys that they are in Chicago, gave him back the missing part of Aww. his nose. Now that's community service right there. So I'm back on. There you go. I know. I know you're uh, President Obama. Good friends with uh, Johnny Bernardas. Came up. <laughs> Came they up together out. in Chicago. Yeah, they played golf together. Wow. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned these war veterans, um, the Bonus Army. This is mm. this is worth drilling down on. You right. got the full story there. You want to tell the story? No, you go right ahead. Right. I'll just do all the work, shall I? You sit there and relax. Okay, wake me up when you're done. Yes. Um, so this this thing is called the Bonus Army. There was about 43,000 people made up of about 17,000 World War I veterans and their families and different mm-hmm. affiliated groups who marched on Washington, D.C. in the spring and summer of 1932 to demand cash payment redemption of their service certificates. Right. So a lot of them were out of work obviously because of the depression and in 1924 so a few years after world war 1 ended the us government had passed this thing called the world war adjusted compensation act which said look <clears throat> we can't afford to pay you <laughs> um uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you certificates it's an iou basically right 
which is going to give you a bonus for fighting in World War One. Um, but you can't collect until 1945. Fuck. So, in fact, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you didn't cash in at all. Maybe frame it. It'll look good on your wall. Uh, but whatever you do, do not cash that in. Yeah. 1945, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. So, like I said, you know, 25, 26 years after. Most, the most of you will be dead by then for maybe injuries <laughs> or just whatever, but God bless you. Yeah. Good luck with that. That's right. Um, so they, they, you know, obviously Great Depression, they're like, what the fuck is this piece of paper good? We need that money now. So they march yeah. on Washington. Now, on July 28th, 1932, the Attorney General, William D. Mitchell ordered the police to remove the bonus army from their camp. They they sort of built, again, ramshackle houses and they had tents and they mm-hmm. set up like a tent embassy yeah. in this part of Washington. Um, the police moved them out. The, the veterans moved back in. Uh, the police drew their revolvers and shot at the veterans, killed two of them. Um, and then Hoover sent in the Army Chief of Staff to remove them. And that guy was... MacArthur? General Douglas MacArthur. Yes. Nailed it. He he went in with infantry, machine guns, cavalry, and six tanks. Because you need those. Imagine today if Obama sent in tanks yeah. to remove people like in um, Occupy Wall Street. Bad enough with that, like capsicum spray and uh, right. pepper spray, as you call it over there, and water oh. guns and shit. Imagine if you'd rolled in with Jeez. tanks and machine guns. Yeah. Um, although I think they probably did. I think I saw footage on John Oliver's show or something of these uh, armoured vehicles anyway marching in these militarised mm. armoured vehicles that the cops have over there now. Anyway, uh, General Douglas MacArthur's uh, aide-de-camp was? That I don't know. Marshal? No, I don't know. Uh, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower. Area. Right. Mm. He tried to talk MacArthur out of it, saying uh, <laughs> later on, right. he said, I told that dumb oh. son of a bitch not to go down there. I told him it was no place for the chief of staff, but MacArthur went and Eisenhower supported him uh, anyway. That's what so, uh, yeah, MacArthur, you know, uh, went in, drove out the uh, bonus army with their wives and their children, burned their yeah. shelters and their belongings with flamethrowers, um, charged them with the cavalry. With The infantry had fixed bayonets and tear gas. A uh, few people died, a couple of kids, a couple of adults. Um, mm-hmm. 55 were injured, 135 arrested. Anyway, so that was go- That kind of stuff was right. going on at I'm the serious. time when uh, just before FDR became president. So back to FDR, let's let's do a little bit of a bio. Born in 1882 mm-hmm. to an old prominent Dutch family from Dutchess County, New York. He and Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. president in 1901, I think, mm-hmm. um, were fifth cousins. Right. Um, FDR went to Groton School and Harvard College. Never heard of either of those, but apparently they're fairly prestigious. Well, that's where he learned to talk like this. <laughs> and at age 23 in 1905, he married mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt. And the mm-hmm. good thing about this is she didn't need to change her name. <laughs> well, she was his fifth cousin once removed in the South. That's like a total stranger. We normally marry first and second cousins. But anyway, so they had the good taste to push it out a little bit 
uh, and do that. Did you just, I'm just throwing this out for the fun of it. Did you know that FDR did not have a name for the first month and a half of his life? His parents were fighting over what to call him. No. Well, you, you probably read about Sarah, his mother, and what kind of dynamic. Yeah. Pro- okay, so we'll save that. But anyways, so the you know normally this is nineteen, um, this is eighteen eighty two. Excuse me. So um, the woman defers to the man as God intended it to be. But Sarah yeah. had such a strong personality, strong will. Plus, she was like half the age or whatever her husband. She just. She wouldn't tell him no because you don't tell your husband no back then. She just wouldn't say yes. And eventually she wore him down and got to name him after her. Think of her, her favorite uncle. But for the first month and a half, hey, kid, hey, you, whatever you name. He did not have a name. I just think that's hilarious. Mm. Hilarious. <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah, so Eleanor was the niece of Teddy Roosevelt. So Franklin enters politics in 1910, serves in the New York State Senate. Then he's Assistant Secretary of the Navy under nice. Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, 1913 to 1920, he grew up. All the uh, I think the the Delanos on his mother's side loved the sea, um, and there's a whole cute story about that. But ever since a young age, he's been on he's been on ships. He's been out to sea. He knows everything about ships and so he relished this job took it seriously poured himself into it and did a pretty good job but yeah he he, he idolized his cousin teddy and who was also in the uh i think secretary of navy so he loved this and he did a really good job and that was um going to be his springboard into politics because when you're rich you can literally just sit around and bide your time and wait to get into politics because you have the means to do so of course, the American Navy back in those years was uh, two two fishing boats and <laughs> and one engine. Yeah, two fishing net. boats. That's yeah, right. They share the engine, yeah, with a lot of holes in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, this is this is during World War One. So he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy it was, during. It was a big World deal. War yeah, I. yeah. In 1920, he ran for vice president with uh, the presidential candidate Jimmy Cox. James M. Cox, but they Dude. lost to oh. Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. Damn. Damn. By the way, um, Coolidge was the last U.S. president to visit Cuba before ah. Obama did a few weeks ago. Good for you. Good wow. For you. Yeah, Good that's a long. Americans can be stubborn. Nope. Even though the rest of the world acknowledges Cuba, we're going to go, nope, nope. Don't see it. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Um, now, as people know, um, Roosevelt was stricken with polio. It happened in 1921, which cost him the use of his legs. Mm. Um, I read um, about this uh, in one of the biographies um, on him, and it was, I mean, quite quite shocking. Yeah. V- you know, very, very athletic, as you said. He's out in boats all the time, loved to love sport, loved to go for a run. Um, all of the, he, comes, he comes back from a swim on his estate one day, says to Eleanor, feel a bit tired, might be coming down with the flu, think I'm going to go to bed early, yeah. wakes up the next morning and can barely move his limbs. Right. And they call in doctors and the doctors go, oh, you'll be right. Just need some rest, get a bit of a massage, you'll Thanks, be fine. Doc. For months. Yeah. Months and months they keep telling him, oh, you should be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, don't be a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I say don't be a pussy. Get up. This isn't what you learned at Harvard. What? How? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they said, yeah, just give it some time. It'll it'll go away. But finally, one of them, one of the doctors gets it right. And that's just the beginning of FDR's climb back into any kind of normal type of lifestyle. 
So just before he's 40, he comes down with Jesus. this. And yeah. I have to say, it's an amazing, uh, amazing, yes. <laughs> it's it's um, an amazing uh, testament yes. to his um, willpower mm-hmm. that America at the time, well, in 1921, was in the middle of the um, prohibition and yeah. yet he was still able to get legless. Yeah. Oh, wow. I get no Is that insensitive to make a legless joke? Is it too a, soon? A bit for, for us Americans, yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> too yeah. soon? It's only, bit, been a bit. only been a century. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in, in all honesty, though, like his, his uh, attitude and optimism to overcome this is uh, really astounding. Yeah. And he did like a drink, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Can I? So, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, at what point, I just want to drill down a little bit into his extremely positive outlook on life. So we can do that now, we can do it later or whatever, but uh, it does, it, it is instrumental in him bouncing back to going, no, I can overcome this, to whatever degree, I can overcome this, even this. Well, be- before we get to that, I want to yeah. um, talk about Warm Springs, Georgia, because this is an important part of the story. I- so when he it comes down with polio in 21, he hears about this uh, treatment center for people with polio. Mm-hmm. Um, it, well, he hears about these warm springs anyway in a place called Warm Springs, Georgia. Don't know how it got that name, but um, <laughs> it was marketing, just marketing yeah. genius who came up Spend with that. Spent a lot of money on that. What do we got here? Oh, I got a lot of warm springs. What are we going to call it? Um, I don't know. Cold. Um, no, let's go with warm springs. Uh, Cold falls. He, he hears that if you go and you, you sit... Yeah. In these warm springs, it has healing powers. Yeah, G- well, have- George Foster Peabody told him that he had heard from a friend who knew someone who got cured of polio by sitting in the warm springs. And he's like, Psh, I got nothing to lose. Off we go. That's scientific enough for me. Exactly. Uh, so he goes there and and he ends up building uh, with his own coin yeah. a um, treatment center for polio there. And he has his own little cottage and um, whatever. But the important thing about this is apparently, uh, you know, Georgia was one of these areas that was very badly hit by the Depression. Mm -hmm. So here you have this rich uh, dude from the elite, from like elites on both sides of the families, the Roosevelt's and the Delano's we'll talk about, um, who ends up spending like a lot of time over the next six, seven years in the late 20s. So I guess it wasn't a depression then, but they still weren't doing it. They were poor, these people in uh, Georgia. Um, He gets to see life from the other side of the tracks, these people that are living in uh, fairly abject poverty. And this apparently, according to at least one biography I read, might have had a lot to do with the fact that when he becomes president, he makes uh, uh, an effort 
to uh, improve the lot of the, the, the people that aren't doing well economically in the US because of his time that he spent in Georgia. So polio drives him to Georgia where he sees, oh, not everybody went to Harvard. Yeah. And um, not everybody is rich. Hey, my God. Oh, it talks know, like this. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, he yeah. Yeah. He, he literally got to see how the not only other half, but the bottom of the other half lives. And there's a, especially a lot of um, poor black children around and they go swimming with him and that you can see video and stuff like that. And yeah, he just went down there to, to, to try and hopefully this would work for him. But like you said, so the so the place, the Warm Springs, the little the little place is going under financially and he buys it for two hundred thousand dollars. Obviously, he's doing OK. And he turns it into a rehab center for polio patients. And but he's able to turn this area around. But like you said, he, this is where he's exposed to for the first time uh, people from another walk of life, because as we can we can do it now later. But his mother, Sarah, who was a force who had a forceful personality, she literally did what you weren't supposed to do when you're from this this uh, economic strata. She did everything herself when it comes to taking care of her child, uh, her only child. And she bathed him. She did everything. And he went. Went for, I don't know, like even 30, as a, it, even yeah. as an adult, she used to bathe him oh, yeah. all the time. Oh yeah, it was, let me it was crazy. let me let me wash down there a little. Right. <laughs> I mean, but the funny thing is, because of the the type of life, and they were literally isolated. He he didn't see too many other kids. He had she, she brought in tutors, so his education was first rate, but his his exposure to the world wasn't all that much. So he was wearing what we would call dresses and had long curly hair way past the point you're supposed to as a little boy. But um, she literally did everything for him. She made all the decisions. She had all the money. And so when he comes down there, this is like just a shock to him to see these people and how they're living because, you know, he just, not that he did anything wrong. He just doesn't know any better because Sarah was so protective and she controlled every facet of his life. And even when he's older, she is going to, she is going to, like Caesar's mother in law, she is going to determine some very important decisions in his life for him. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to talk about Sarah later, but we can do a bit of that now. Like I read that seven of her ancestors landed with the yeah. Mayflower. <laughs> we are um, talking bluest of the blue bloods here, people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he was descended on one side from the Hudson River Roosevelt's, but the mm -hmm. Delano's, as you mentioned before, her side of the family were swashbuckling sea captains, <laughs> global traders, Pirates. and risk takers. Her father, <laughs> Warren Delano, yeah. made a fortune in China in the 1840s exporting tea and then a much larger one in the 1860s in the opium trade. <laughs> Well, he the the bank that he invested in lost all his money, lost a lot of his money from the tea trade, and he made it for he made a million dollars. And this is you know, what maybe not even turn of the century, but he made a million dollars selling trading tea in China. The bank folds, folds. He loses the vast majority of his money. He goes, he, he literally sends his family to another home. He goes out to China for five years and makes even more money selling opium. So remember, boys and girls, if you have to choose between. Tea and opium, always go with opium. But he literally made a second fortune and was able to save the family. And that's the money that Sarah is going to use to take care of and control her son. And she was like, she married her husband when she was 27. He was 54. So he's not long for this world. And she's going to become FDR's entire universe. And she wanted it that way. And she lived two years in China, was educated in France and Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spoke um, French. Germany was nothing to her. 
Yeah. Someone remarked she had a gift for saying the right thing at the right time and she could say it in several languages. <laughs> I so remember- she sounds like she was an impressive lady. Yeah, I remember one thing because he, he didn't get the social skills that he could have, but he had great tutors. I think I remember reading something like when other kids his age were learning their ABCs, he was learning his ABCs in English, French, and German all at the same time. So an astounding person uh, who had a – who you know, besides the polio, pretty much had every break in life you could possibly have. And that's going to affect his outlook on life later on when we talk about that. Mm. Sarah once said, my son Franklin is a Delano. He is not a Roosevelt <laughs> at all. So she saw him more coming from the uh, – Drug pirate, uh, the, dr- the drug trader side of the family. Yeah. Hey, um, let me ask you this real quick because I ran across this quote and it just fits perfectly for uh, for FDR. There's a saying that a person is embarrassed if their father is a crook, but they brag if their grandfather is a pirate. Well, my grandfather on my mother's side uh-huh. did time in jail for B&E. So, um, you know, and I've, and, you know, it was sort of hushed up until he died. I'd never heard of it. Right. Um, and then it sort of the family skeletons came out when he died. And I was like, he, he broke into somebody's house to steal their jewelry so he right. could run off, run off with his mistress. <laughs> so not much and changed. Okay. After he died and I found out about that, I was like, that is fucking awesome. But if it had been your father, you're, you're embarrassed because yeah. I guess there's no generational gap to make it safe. Well, I mean, my mother my- was 10 years old when it happened and she was, and it was on the front page of the local paper. Nice. He's a hero. And, He's a- yeah, yeah. And so she was horrified. <laughs> and I have spent hours in the my hometown library scanning through microfiche of the old newspapers looking for yeah. that headline, I want that on my fucking That's wall. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, like, for me, I'm like, that is awesome. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I digress. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Roosevelts uh, themselves, their wealth came from Manhattan real estate, the West yeah. Indian sugar trade. They had married well, the men in the family. Much of their money came from the their wives. Yeah. They had, they Married were, up. Yeah. But for six generations, they had produced no one of significant stature in terms of, you know, political notoriety. And then suddenly, Boom. within 30-odd years, they this dynasty of the mediocre, in the words of the New York Herald Tribune, um, I love that. You know, created not one but two right. of the most remarkable presidents in American history. Amazing. Um, so anyway, and, and this women were very important to Franklin, as we'll find yes. out as we go. His mother probably the most important right. of all. He was a mama's boy. Yes, but it worked out. Um, for him. Yeah. So anyway, getting back to uh, sort of um, his sort of political career. Um, mm-hmm. So we said he ran for ran for vice president, uh, failed, um, became, came down with polio. Then he goes back to political life in 1928, runs for governor of New York, Woo. wins that, serves for three or four years. Um, during that time, obviously, the next year the Depression hit, and he was, the uh, I think, the only governor in the U.S. that actually mm-hmm. enacted r- programs right. to combat 
the depression in New York State. Um, yeah. So so he got a, he sort of you know got his feet wet trying to you know use um, public funds and public works programs in New York uh, to to do something about negating the impacts of the depression on the people, and this obviously then led him to a run for president in 1932 when he defeats Herbert Hoover to win the presidency. Uh, you know, and this is a guy who can barely walk. Walks right. with crutches for short periods, mostly in a wheelchair. Yeah. Now, I thought it was interesting if I could just talk about that for a second. So, yeah, so he's got to like, you know, because people like that who had polio, the general thing that you do with them is you literally put them literally in an asylum because they're not employable. They're, they're ashamed to their family. You literally push them aside. You lock them away. They're a pariah. And he's like, no, I'm going to get back into politics. Cause like you said, he was out for years. He was swimming three times a week, building up his strength. His body is getting better, but it's only going to get so good. But you know, he gets into those braces and he learns to swing walk. I mean, this takes him years to do this, but he never gives up, but he learns to like swing his legs. So he's not stepping there. You know, it's like almost like a penguin walking. And then he develops his own wheelchair because all the other wheelchairs were one size fits all. He made one, especially for him. It's nice and small. He can maneuver it. He even has one of his cars modified so you can drive, he can drive it on his own without um, using his feet without pedals. So he is literally using his enthusiasm, his intelligence, and let's be honest, his resources. And he is making it possible for him to interject himself back into life. And from what I could gather, it wasn't so much that people weren't talking about his his polio or that he was trying to hide it too much. He was downplaying it. And he was, because some people did know, but he was literally trying to appear to be as normal as possible because he did not want sympathy. And the one thing that he had learned is that people truly had no idea what it meant when you said, oh, I have polio. It's just, oh, it's a disease, you know, push them away. So he was trying to appear as normal as possible. And he's able to learn how to hold on to someone's arm and, and kind of swing walk. So he's getting around. And when he does win that election against Hoover, he gets 57.4 the popular vote. Um, so that's not bad, you know, coming in for your, your first victory. Um, but he is literally trying to be as normal as he can because the people need to focus on his message and not his disability. Hmm. I don't think they even called it polio back then. I think it was called infantile, infantile yeah, paralysis. paralysis. Yeah, I was taking the easy think- way out. And I think people have a concern if somebody is, you know, looks very ill, are they going to be able to uh, right. serve out their term? Are they going to be able to do the job if they're... Especially not, now. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. they need to fight. They need someone in there, a fighter, and the exact opposite of Herbert Hoover. Mm. Yeah. So, but he, so he gets uh, voted in as president, but almost doesn't get to get sworn in. Right. Um, because there was an assassination attempt. Mm. Do on tell. The 15th of February, 1933. <sighs> you know about this? Mm. You ever heard about this before? No, I just had a little bit of better speech, but no, please go ahead. So um, on the 15th of February, 1933, Roosevelt's giving an impromptu speech from the back of an open car in Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, Cubans. Sorry. Wasn't a Cuban. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was after the Cubans moved to Miami. The Cubans were all still in Cuba in 1933. That's right. right. The assassin was an unemployed 32-year-old Italian bricklayer, Giuseppe Zangara. 
Ah. Took five shots at uh, Roosevelt with a revolver, but he was quite a long way away and he was on a rickety chair. Um, the Chicago mayor, Anton Chermak, who was standing beside Roosevelt, uh, was killed. Oh, okay. um, he was shot. Rose, he sort of got into the car, I think, was shot. Um, allegedly said to Roosevelt his last words were, I'm glad it was me instead of you. Mm, um, I would be now, saying that. Uh, Roosevelt, not a scratch on him. But um, Chermak gets killed. Zangara apparently bought his revolver at a pawn shop on North Miami Avenue for $8. He told the police, I've always hated the rich and powerful I do not hate Mr. Roosevelt personally. I hate all presidents, no matter from what country they come. I'm shoot him. I don't I don't dislike him. I just don't want him alive. Yeah. Jeez. He, he uh, said to the police, I have the gun in my hand. I kill kings and presidents first and next all the capitalists. <laughs> you don't he, have enough uh, bullets, buddy. He pleaded four, He pleaded guilty to four counts of attempted murder, was sentenced to 80 years in prison. As he was let out of the courtroom, he said to the judge, four times 20 is 80. Oh, judge, don't be stingy. Give me 100 years. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He wants to get his ass whipped in jail on a daily basis. And shouldn't it be five attempts of murder if he shoots five times? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just asking. Uh, I think he hit four people. Oh, that's right. That's um, right. Good point. Yeah. As he's let out of the courtroom, uh, no, sorry, uh, a couple of days later, though, uh, Chermak died, the Chicago mayor. And so he was, Zangara was tried, convicted, and then executed for murder. After hearing his sentence, he said, You give me electric chair. I'm not afraid of that chair. You one of capitalists. You as crookman, too. Put me in an electric chair. I don't care. God. He was um, known for you know being quite reasonable and uh, was fun to have at parties. Um, <laughs> The, the circuit court judge, Yuli Thompson, who sentenced him, next urged Congress to outlaw and confiscate all handguns. Ooh, no. Stating, and this is in 1933, it is a ridiculous state of society that an assassin may be permitted to arm himself and go at liberty throughout the land, killing whom he will kill. For $8. 1933, Judge Thompson. Uh, well, sorry to tell you, Judge Thompson. <laughs> Things haven't gotten better. They got a lot worse. Yeah. Not better yeah. in the United States since then. Zangara's final statement was, Viva Italia! Goodbye to all poor peoples everywhere. Push the button. Go ahead. Push the button. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, if they would let him, could you bring that button over here? I'll do it myself. That's how much of a man I am. Now, the interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, if he had succeeded and Roosevelt hadn't become president, Mm. What would have happened? Who the f- yeah. Oh, like, I don't even want to think about it. You know, the Depression, World War Two, the whole yeah. deal. What would have happened if the beginning if of the Cold War? Yeah. yeah. Did you ever watch Newsroom, Aaron Sorkin's yeah. last well, most yeah. recent show? Um, there's a scene where the the main star of it, the news anchor, mm-hmm. is talking to his staff. He tells them this story about Zangara. And he said, he says Zangara's chair that he was sitting on had a wobbly leg, which is why he missed, because he was apparently a, quite a good assassin, mm-hmm. uh, quite a good sharpshooter from the Italian army. Right. And, um, you know, uh, McAvoy, Will McAvoy, the character in Newsroom, says, you know, the person that made the chair leg mm-hmm. a little bit too short right. saved the 20th century. <laughs> oh, I like that. 
You know, and he was talking about how there are unintended consequences from little little Everything. actions. Right. You know? Yeah. Jeez. That's a great great Aaron Sorkin uh, yeah. storyline. Um, three weeks later, FDR was sworn in. You want to read some of his uh, famous speech? Well, no, I was just going to to comment on um, there weren't a lot of balloons and cheers and stuff like that. When he's given his uh, inauguration speech, it's literally as silent as a group of mourners around a grave, one per, one reporter observed. So he's sitting there giving the speech, trying to lift the people up. But it's quite clear by 1933, early 1933, the vast majority of Americans have not only given up on themselves, they've given up on their country, they've given up on their government, not that the government's been doing anything to help them, but literally everybody has given up. And here's this guy with this carefree smile, standing, swaggering, if you will. But it's it's all just quiet and everybody's, okay, you should up for these things because that's what you do because you respect authority and then let's all go to wherever we live now and get back on with our miserable lives. It was just a pathetic scene that he was, that's the moment that he started trying to lift everyone up and not to jump too far ahead. But an hour later after his speech, he literally has his entire cabinet all sworn in at the same time together so they can get to the fucking job. Again, that's just something that's very unusual. And he was just ready to go. And we're going to get into all this later. But this man, I don't know what other talents he had, if he had any besides sailing and stamp collecting. But he was a politician's politician. And he is about to do some things in history that I think maybe a handful of human beings on this planet for the last 3,000 years could possibly do. And he did it all with a smile on his face. Mm. His uh, inauguration speech, uh, this great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Yeah. Very, very Churchillian. Yeah. Because he was right. Imagine Churchill saying that. Because he was saying things like, thank God, the only thing we've really lost are the material things. We're still all here. It's not like it's not like there's a plague throughout. It's not like there's been big bombs dropped in this country. We've lost our money, but we're all still here. We've all still got each other. And if we can remember that and focus on that, then we can do something. Because here's a guy who's literally come back from what we're just going to lazily call polio. Because he said early before this, he said, you gain strength courage and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. So they're all moping and they're all sad and everything, but he's like, shit, I've been through polio. I've, you know, I used to have women. I had affairs. I had my life stopped in the tracks in the prime of my life. And I came back from that. I'm now the president I can do this. You can do it too. And so he's just got this can do go for it attitude and it will take time, but it does start to spread to the people because he's an awesome politician. If a rich white man can become president of this country, (laughs) anybody can accomplish anything. (laughs) That's the way we like it. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I think I think we should end uh, this episode. We'll call this Roosevelt Part One, mm-hmm. and I think we've got plenty of stuff to do. We'll do. It's going to be a two part of the Roosevelt episode. Yeah, never fear, we shall return. 
Sorry, I had to uh, Before we finish, I want to thank uh, our first heroes, the Cold War heroes, the patrons of the show. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with um, DEFCON 3, which is our highest level of contribution, our mate Tim Henning. Tim, thank Def you. DEFCON 3, wow. thank you, Tim. Tyler do, do we ever thank him for the hooker? Never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, DEFCON 2 supporters uh, so far are Kevin Tripp and Brian Simmons. Thank you so much, guys. And our DEFCON 1 supporters, Robert Scoy, Paula Davis, David Drummond, Amir Rosenblatt, Michael Roman, Quentin Weber, Nicholas Ferrara, Bruce Hannaford, Andrew Geelan, Mike McGregor, William Hunt, Vincent Kurtzdorfer, Sean Hebb, Stacey Costa, Sam Dixon, Steve Bedell, Stephanie Ledison, Ben Organ, Martin Lefebvre, uh, Jeff Smith, Jeffrey Smith. Thank you, people, for thank you. signing up for the premium subscription um, early. Yes. Uh, we, we acknowledge your faith and contribution, and um, we will do our best not to let you down. No. So... That is the end of uh, Cole. Actually, I, I, I should do. There's some reviews too. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, oh, may I? Please. Um, all right. Well, shit. There's so much uh, yeah. great reviews. I don't know where to start. Um, and but they're I'm long. Sure. Yeah, they're long. They're good. Um, and they're long. I'm just going to pick one at random. Yeah. Here we go. Okay. Um, Desling. Uh, massive in scope, but still dope. It was with great anticipation and hot baited breath that I began listening to this series. The topic of the Cold War, the ultimate military standoff and all it entailed, whether that be the propaganda war waged by both sides, the underpinning political realities and their legacies, the shadow and proxy wars and so forth is something that has dyed the colour of our everyday lives in the 21st century and something I'm fascinated by and should be of interest to anyone engaged in the world we now live in. This show has a lot to live up to as it is... Quite the pedigree behind it. Ray and Cam's other fantastic endeavours are veritable golden ejaculations of incisively dissected, cogitated, and and reconstructed history bound with the nice bow of friendly existential conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It works. It instills life, blood, energy into topics that could be as dull as dried dog shit in the hands of a novice. Be sure that you are in the masterful yet caressing and cajoling hands of a pair of podcasting supermen with Ray and Cam that would put even Onan to shame. I say Ray and Cam, but it is clear the true dynamic of power between the two has now been solidified in in the show's titles. It is Cam and Ray's Cold War podcast, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. Now, I, I want to point out the only reason it is... Cam and Ray's Cold War podcast is because I wanted the logo to look like CCCP. Ah. Now it is CRCP, just dropping the W. Yeah. Which is, you know, the Soviet Union logo. That's the only reason Cam's first. No problem with that. Uh, and length. Length, girth, and yeah. Uh, yeah. to make it look like. An all around the- smell. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, we are very much in the sphere of Mr. Riley's subjective passion. They begin in the early episodes, as any good lover does, with soft, gentle scene setting, kisses mm-hmm. and pillow talk, mm-hmm. and an occasional inappropriately placed hand that is not then removed. You know it. I've, 
No doubt as things progress, we shall get balls deep into specific pivotal, event, pivotal events, and the thought of that alone is enough to engorge the passions of any listener worth their salt. As I alluded to, Cam is driving the car and Ray clings on for dear life, but fear not, he is a willing passion passenger and a consenting partner. It's true. He is the very definition of a lovable straight man to the propelling force that is the thunder from down under. <laughs> I like that. Cam is fighting the good fight against the Western textbook tale told of the Cold War. It's driven and falsehood-riven, oligarchy-sanctioned view is rightly dragged up for enhanced interrogation by our two hosts. Ray is our eyes-wide-open neophyte and our way into a place that some may find unfamiliar, but Cam is our real guide. As such, he could take advantage of the narrative, but as he is a true consummate communicator, who can't even say those two words with such struggling... He spells out his bias, explains his standpoint, but then pulls no punches in his delivery. Such honesty truly validates this endeavor, this sort of candid discussion, as opposed to a podcasting scholar who keeps their agenda in the shadows, gives integrity and raw punk power to this pioneering kind of podcasting, even if it does not deserve your admiration, which it bloody should, at least it deserves a listen. However, for me, this is a must listen. Well, fuck me, Desling. <laughs> you should be doing the podcast. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Uh, sit back. You do it. You turn it in. That's far more intelligent than anything we're ever yeah. likely to say. Yeah, in the last two and a half years. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, Desling, send us an email um, to whatever the fuck our email address <laughs> is on this show. Pick one. Uh, I think it's email at a coldwar.com. Or just rv at lifeofcaesar.com. Just fi- figure it out, Dazzling. Yeah. Send can. us an email and um, we will send you uh, a Cold War gift pack, which is a photo of Ray Cold- crying. Cold War gift pack. I like that, yes. yeah, And I've got a yeah. lot of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that. Let's. Uh, we'll be back again uh, in the next week or so with mm-hmm. uh, FDR... Part two. Thank you, Ray. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 